Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Doreen Shanaz to the show. Doreen Shanaz is a global leader in social impact and a pioneer in impact investing. She is also the founder of Impact Investment Exchange, also known as IIX, and the IIX Foundation. IIX is the home of the world's first social stock exchange and one of the world's largest crowdfunding platforms for impact investing. Doreen is the recipient of the UN Women's 2020 Asia-Pacific Women's Empowerment Principles Award, the 2019 Sustainability Superwoman Award from CSR Works, the 2017 Oslo Business for Peace Award, often referred to as the Nobel Prize for Business, the 2017 Global Steering Group for Impact Investment Impact Market Builder of the Year Award, the 2016 Asia Society Asia Game Changer Award, in addition to the prestigious 2014 Joseph Wharton Social Impact Award given by the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Doreen, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Raj. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Really appreciate Doreen, it. Doreen, pleasure and look forward to the conversation. I'd like to start off with your book and ask you, what is a defiant optimist? Well, I'm glad you started with that because that's the that's the name of the book, The Defiant Optimist. And basically, a defiant optimist is someone who really takes on a system um, and makes it work for many others. And uh, and I think what I tried to do with the book, you know, defiant is a very strong word. It's usually sort of seen in a negative angle. Um, and for me, it really was to say, yes, it's a very strong word. It has some negative connotation because someone sort of uh, not confining to a system, but I feel like it has it has a lot of courage in that word as well. And really taking that that audacity, that fire, that courage, and combining it with optimism that yes, you know, we all can play a role in terms of making a system work for everyone. So that's really a defined optimist. You know, it's interesting you said that the word has a negative connotation. And I'll tell you, I had an aha moment about 20 years ago, and it was around the views on the word tolerate. And okay. it was a conversation with a, someone I consider to be a mentor, and he's an English major, and he was saying, you know, we put these feelings around words, because I would actually argue to your side saying that from a defiant perspective, I think over generations, over centuries, if people hadn't been defiant and had, you know, had gone along with what was a status quo, we perhaps would not be here. All the evolution, Absolutely. all the technology, everything we're seeing today, had someone said, you can't do that, and then they responded with, okay, I can't, instead of being defiant, where yes. would we be today? Yes, no, you're absolutely right, Rod, and I'm glad I'm glad um, you feel the same way because um, because I have been asked this, you know, now several times over the last few weeks, uh, 
wow, this is a negative word. And I said, really, is it? <laughs> so, so just sort of cut to the chase. I'm like, okay, you know, you can, you can make a word, whatever you want it to be, but you know, without defiance, you're absolutely right. We won't be actually having this conversation today. And, uh, you know, there would be so much more to do in the world, but there still is. So we need that defiance. And, I mean, let, let's dig in personally for a moment here. If you hadn't had some degree of defiance and optimism, where would you be right now, you know, from your journey 30, 40 years ago? You know, it's um, it's it's uh, it's an interesting question because I do think of that, and I do have, I'm reminded of that. I have to tell you each time I go back to Bangladesh, you know, where I'm originally from, um, and you know, I think I probably would have had a life of what was set out for me. You know, in in my generation, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. Um, we had a life set out for us, you know, in terms of. Uh, what we needed to do and you know whom we needed to marry and and our role sort of being able to play that dutiful spouse so i think probably my life would have been very similar to a lot of my lives that my relatives are leading um and in some ways when i go back um you know i sort of slip back in you know into the whole cycle of our societal norms but always knowing that i can escape after the week and go back to my own life, you know, where I am a defined optimist and, and quietly, you know, I continue to do the work even in Bangladesh. But um, just within sort of the, the my family circle, it probably would have been a life that would have been quite different. Um, and, and I'm not making a value judgment about it, but uh, not something that would have uh, really shaken up things and changed things and impacted lives of, of millions out there. Well, speaking of shaking up things, can you give us an overview of the Impact Investment Exchange, your role, and what it does today? Absolutely. Um, so I founded the company 14 years ago, and this was actually, and this is what I talk about in the book, it's not something that it was an epiphany. Um, it really was a journey. And I think I also sort of point out in the book how, you know, in, in our life journey, some things we have control over, some things happen. And this was one of those moments where, um, I was asked to start this by the Rockefeller Foundation, um, who came in as sort of the, I would say, the seed supporter for the organization. Um, so I happened to be, you know, in the place where this whole term impact investing was coined. I was part of the group um, who was fortunate to kind of take this and be a part of a movement with a bigger group of people. But I happened to sort of fly back to Asia and do this from Singapore um, for my region in Asia Pacific, and um, and really the premise of Impact Investment Exchange, which we call IAX for short, was again quite defiant, quite audacious. Which was we're going to change a financial system and we're going to make it work for everyone. And you have to understand this was quite something sitting in Singapore, where um, you know, which is a very wealthy country, um, I believe. You know, <laughs> you know, I think it was just got the ranking the most expensive city in the world. And then also the fact that I was just reading somewhere more than half of the family office wealth sits in Singapore. Um, so I think, you know, imagine like a little rich Switzerland in Asia. And so sitting there, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to use what Singapore has, which is an incredible financial system, and see how I can make it for all these other countries, you know, around me, which comprises of, again, most of the the global, you know, South and you know, how can I actually do that? So it really started off sort of saying, I'm going to create an ecosystem. I always say it takes a village to change anything. So 
if I was going to go out there and try to do something, I needed stakeholders, I needed partners. So a lot of went into educating an ecosystem, you know, doing a lot of groundwork in terms of research and really then building up um, uh, basically a financial platform, you know, where these SMEs, the small, medium enterprises, small, medium businesses who were focusing on women, minorities, and also climate action, you know, they could actually raise capital, you know, from investors who had the wealth um, to invest in them. Now, I want to make it very, very clear that no one's sitting there with their purse open and saying, oh my God, just take it, right? So we really had to make a case in terms of how you measure impact, how you actually um, make that quantifiable impact be relatable as well as be a part of the whole financial kind of portfolio theory um, process. Um, And we have been able to prove that the deeper impact you create, your risk of actually the investment goes down. And uh, case in point, we have now put out in the market over $300 million um, over the past 12 plus years, and we have never had a single loss, not a single loss. And again, I say that with much pride, much um, happiness, honestly, because along with that, we also impacted lives of over 100 million people across you know, Asia, Pacific, and Africa, and getting them bet- better health, better education, access to finance, um, you know, access to clean energy, et cetera. So I do feel that we have been able to sort of connect through IIX the last mile, um, you know, as we like to say, the back street to Wall Street. And with the success of our platform, we then started creating these financial products. Um, and this is something that has received a lot of global attention, which is called the Women's Livelihood Bond, where we pull together a group of uh, small, medium businesses, create a st- bond structure and put it out in the market. Um, we have had a lot of governments who come in and basically de-risk those instruments, uh, U.S. government being one of them. And for us, we've been able to really straddle that wonderful uh, in-between position of being doing economic development work, but as well as being able to play the financial market. So, so for us, you know, we have been able to sort of take, you know, high finance to low markets and being able to really effectively connect, as we like to say, you know, backstreet to Wall Street. So, um, it has been an incredible journey and a journey that, um, you know, I won't change for anything. It was it was great, and we've been able to really move mountains. So the idea of no losses is extremely interesting. Why do you think, or what does the data show as far as why there are no losses? So, you know, what we have, um, so we have a lot of data, Raj, as you can imagine, um, and we do all this analysis and correlation and so on and so forth. And the data, what it shows is very, very interesting. And you will, when I say it, you almost will say, oh my God, isn't that a no-brainer? But but you always need the data to show the no-brainer, which is... Um, we have seen, you know, for whenever a small medium business is working very deeply with the community, if they're really deeply working with um, everyone in the community, and I say that because, again, women being half the global population, they get ignored. Um, so, and also, of course, the gender minorities, they get ignored. So we basically, for us, it's like if you're working with everyone, pulling everyone in, um, you know, basically treating them fairly and then also you know being able to sort of keep in mind with your work that you're not destroying things around you right Um, and being mindful of that because the community has to live there Um, and you're coming in from outside and be you're making a factory or selling your solar cook 
cook stoves or be it you're putting a water purifier, whatever it is, um, that you're doing something that the community needs and the fact that the community will pay for it. Um, all this combined, what you're doing also stepping back is you're creating very deep, um, sustainable impact. And that also means you're actually creating a very strong company, a company that the community needs and the community wants it to stay. So the community will ensure that the company's um, growth is actually something that they all participate in. So I think, you know, yes, it seems like a no-brainer, but I feel like, you know, if you think about it over the years of capitalism, I think we have sort of forgotten that we need every stakeholder, you know, not just the uh, people who own the company and, uh, you know, uh, people who are basically you're kind of selling the stuff to and doing marketing to them. But really, they're only just the two of the stakeholders, the consumers and the shareholders from a big equation of stakeholders. So so this is why I think, you know, it works. You have an ecosystem that's coming together. You have an ecosystem from every angle who's a participant. And, uh, and you know, again, as a result, you have very strong organizations. And strong organization means that they can actually pay the loan off. And it's very, very... Our, our investment, you know, they, they're actually giving the return, you know, for an equity investment. Um, even during pandemic, it was very interesting. And a lot of people said, I mean, come on. I mean, in pandemic, you must have had, you know, a lot of um, challenges. Of course, you know, everyone had challenges. But the thing is, for us, there was a few things. We saw that, again, most of our organizations that we work with, which is like hundreds of them, um, they had, they were very in finance, as we call them, diversified because there were most of them operating in the rural areas. And we, if you, again, in the pandemic, as we know, it hit the older people and it hit the communities which are more um, congested, you know. And so basically for us, um, these are countries and basically communities filled with young people, a um, lot in the rural area, and the businesses just actually moved on. So it is, again, if you think about it, I'm just translating kind of common language into finance language, you know, diversification. You know, we had that. Um, you know, if you're actually talking about um, reducing risk with making sure that the company will grow, we had that. So we basically were able to, um, you know, live finance in a very real way and make it work. And, um, and as a result, I mean, we haven't had any defaults. Yes, of course, we had some blips here and there, but we have been able to um, jump in and kind of, you know, sort it out and so that there was no default. So I think it's really using things in a very um, effective way. Well, I think I hear two things. One is this word community keeps coming up over and over again. And maybe a different way to say community is peers, peer pressure. Again, a word that can have different connotations. But I think that when you have positive peer pressure, it's... Um, it's, it's good for everyone around. Yeah. And the second part is that, can you give an example of a company that you said perhaps went into a community and is now thriving? Of course. So for example, um, well, I'll give you several. Um, so we, um, there's a company, for example, called ATAC, and they basically create these biodigesters for the villages. And again, what they have done is very effectively... Um, they create these biodigesters, you know, again, they raise the money to create the biodigester, which of course is, takes quite a bit of capital. So that's where the investors come in and the way the 
they give us the return, the investors, is basically by doing pay as you go, you know, for the community because the they have these um, pipes that go out and the and basically in every home now they have clean cook stoves. Um, they have clean cook stoves, and then they also have um, you know other utility. Um, appliances that they're putting in place. So I think, again, it's they start with the clean cook stove because, of course, you know, the cook stove is something that every every single household has in the villages. And I think the thing is, if you think about it, this biodigester, they're just throwing all the trash in there, right? The community is just throwing all the trash. That's being turned into uh, a source of clean energy that's actually then helping them cook their food. So this is something that you know, for them, this has now become a way of life. And again, for the company, they're now an utility company, if you can think of it that way, which is actually not only creating clean energy, but also actually serving the community very effectively. Um, and also creating a lot of, um, I would say, positive social impact for the women. For example, for the women, now they don't have to, and the girls, they don't have to go out and collect firewood, which of course has a um, safety issue around it. They don't have to inhale the carbon monoxide from the, you know, firewood or kerosene, you know, um, stoves. They actually also are doing, they're able to save a lot of money because the pricing is much cheaper than buying kerosene or firewood if they had to buy it. So, um, so I think, and then for the environment, you're not cutting down the trees for the firewood. So I think it is, um, you know, so many multiplier effect and not just in, in terms of their immediate things, but also with health, the environment. Um, so it has, you know, and you can see this company just thriving and growing. They started in Cambodia, now they're in Bangladesh. So they're just thriving. There's another company, um, for example, where um, they're working with 2,000 um, women farmers in Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest producer for cocoa beans in the world. But they don't really make good chocolates. All the cocoa bean goes out to Europe, to America, and all the high-end value-added chocolate is created, and you find other people in the value chain you know, making a lot more money than the cocoa producers. So um, this entrepreneur set out to actually create high-end chocolates, and um, she did it. You know, We have been working with her for seven years, and uh, and actually, it's one of our portfolio companies as well. And now her chocolate is so successful, her chocolate company, um, that it's being bought over by a Danish coffee company. So I think the reality is, once again, you know, just thinking of, of business in a way that, you know, can make things happen more effectively locally uh, and being able to kind of find ways to, to create you know, products and services that can actually uh, make use of what we have. So I think that's, that's very powerful. Now, the other thing I'll, I'll note, you know, this, especially in this chocolate company, this is by owned by uh, a woman entrepreneur. We noticed during pandemic, the companies which actually suffered, most of them were women-owned. And we realized that during the pandemic that, again, um, as we have heard also elsewhere, globally, women were impacted more, you know, by pandemic, by various ways, right? Taking on uh, more um, responsibilities and, and so on and so forth. But in this case, also, we realized that, you know, men, a lot of men, of course, have an, you know, already an embedded network. And these women didn't have that. Um, so if, say, in this chocolate company that she was selling in um, the airports, and all of a sudden all the airports were shut down and 
she was literally going under. And that's when we sort of had to rally and sort of say, okay, you know what? Um, I think we need to start making small loans to these uh, companies who are looking at the brink of going under um, and in very reasonable terms and see whenever they can pay it back and be able to kind of pull them out of it. And and we did that and we approached the Australian government. They were very, very supportive of this. Um, and we, you know, saved over half a dozen companies which were at the brink of going under. And they're all kind of thriving now. The loan has been paid off, et cetera. So I think this also showed us during the pandemic um, or any kind of in any kind of disaster where we see, again, not only women are impacted most, but women-owned companies are also impacted more, you know, more severely. And we need to have things in place to be able to lift them up um, and just help them out until things normalize, in which we did. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, there again, I can just go on and on, but, you know, they're, they're wonderful examples of in India, mobile, high, uh, mobile eye clinics in, um, in Assam, you know, the mountainous area where people don't have access, mm-hmm. they don't, they can't travel. Um, you know, we have, uh, um, also in India a company, which is uses, uh, produces marigold flower for, um, and again, most of the, and, and collects flowers from the women farmers who have uh, who have marigold farms and actually um, sell it to the pharmaceuticals you know for I believe marigold is used for various um, various medicinal purposes so so it's just really remarkable because if you look at it agriculture you know clean energy water health education across all these sectors we have hundreds of companies that we're working with across Asia Pacific and Africa this idea of restructuring when companies are in trouble. I think it's interesting because I heard it said many, many years ago that, you know, if you owe a bank a million dollars, you know, they'll come for their money. If you owe a bank a billion dollars, they'll be willing to restructure it for you. And <laughs> that's that's a good one. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I mean, we see it every quarter, you know, someone or the other that owes billions of dollars is being restructured. But if it's a mom and pop business, you know, on Main Street, and they owe a few hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, very rarely is that loan restructured for them. Exactly. No, that's a very good point, Raj, and I'm really glad you brought it up because, you know, I think, again, it shows that we only will care if we, you know, we know that we have a lot to lose. And, um, you know, if they go down, we go down. But I think, again, it's what we're valuing, right? I think for the reality for us was if these companies go down, it's going to impact you know, thousands and thousands of people out there that they're working with and they're providing employment for. So for us, it was definitely worth it to restructure, you know, the loans. That's very interesting. Well, I'm I've, glad I've you heard you. In the, yeah, I've heard you in the past. You know, talk about equitable situations, and I think the only way we can get there—not the only way, but one of the ways we can get there—is if we treat people across the board with some degree of fairness. And again, it goes back to the community. It goes back to. Right now in America, there are different struggles going on with the banking system. Community banks are disappearing. And yep. so the large the large banks don't have any real relationship with their end user and customer. So when mm-hmm. you don't have that community presence and you don't have that relationship, you're more inclined to perhaps make a quick decision whether a person should, quote unquote, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, live or die. Absolutely. And, you know, I would say that perhaps we should all take some responsibility on that as well, because, um, you know, it's very interesting. I had, again, I'm doing so many of these talks, right? And I think in each of them, it just a new thing element comes out. I'm like, God, I didn't really think about this. Um, But there was a a couple of times I've been asked that, 
Wow. So you actually have this sort of very community approach, you know, bringing everyone in, all the stakeholders, et cetera. So there is a price to pay for this. I said, of course there is. There's nothing free in this world. So um, it's like, well, well, you're taking on this cost, which means that you are giving up your own growth. And I said, yeah, perhaps I am. Perhaps I did a little bit. Um, but for me, it was worth it because for me, I might I much rather grow slowly but steadily with everyone around me than actually have a unicorn. And it was really interesting. And again, I really feel that perhaps also, you know, we have to take the responsibility, you know, as people that what we are actually, um, you know, putting up there as achievement. You know, we love quote-unquote unicorns. We love everything that Silicon Valley does. Do we, really? I think um, at least I would say, you know, sitting in, you know, as an American sitting outside, you can't imagine the amount of um, admiration Silicon Valley has, right? So there may be criticism about Silicon Valley here, but at least outside and, and, you know, people, countries just love, they think this is sort of where everything is coming out from. And, you know, there has been this whole, you know, sort of, I would say this dance around this kind of getting that one company out there and throwing all this money and the Ponzi scheme of kind of moving it around goes on from one VC to the other. But I do feel that what we are not doing, what media is not doing, what the financial system is not doing is really celebrating the companies which are steadily moving forward, steadily growing with the community around it. Um, and I'm really glad you brought up the community development banks. I am a huge fan of the community development banks. Um, and I remember coming out of business school, I actually looked to work, um, you know, with one of them in Philadelphia. And I just couldn't believe it when I was spending time with them that basically they're so underfunded. So I do feel that, you know, for us, once again, uh, what we are, what are we valuing? right, as people, and what are we valuing as a country? And I think that's very, very important. And uh, and I think that, you know, again, you know, and you're, you're part of media, I was part of media at one point, I think uh, we have to take some responsibility to be able to um, celebrate, you know, companies which are not the quote-unquote, you know, norm. But ironically, I think we are the norm, you know, the companies which grow steadily, um, and with everyone around us, um, so so it's very it's very interesting, you know. So I think um, you know what is what is the norm, what is not. But for me, it's almost immaterial if you're actually growing with everyone around you. So maybe a brief answer to that question you received regarding your growth and um, becoming a unicorn. I heard recently it's been rumbling around in my mind earlier this year, and I've had a note on my desk. It said there are no solutions, only trade offs, and so. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you get to decide what, 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 what trade-offs you're making. The other part of the unicorn and the speed, I feel like the one thing that gets overlooked quite often is that, you know, we are products of nature and mm -hmm. in nature, everything has its own pace. Now, yep. obviously you can put miracle grow or whatever you want on, you know, a plant perhaps, and you get expedited growth. But even with that comes trade-offs, you know, comes disease and sickness and illness Absolutely. and other things, pesticides, et cetera. And so, you know, depending on how you want to grow and grow as a community and keep an eye out for everyone. Now, I'm coming back to this because there's something you said in a podcast or maybe it was in your TEDx talk. And I just I have underlined it here in my notebook. And it's around poor countries or and I think you mentioned also underserved communities being told what to do and how to behave. 
And yes. So again, I live in America. I absolutely love America. Yesterday was July 4th. Phenomenal. I'm an immigrant to America. There's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be locked into than America, the opportunities. But I feel like sometimes we lose touch and we perhaps promote or put people in places of authority, perhaps in the government or in Congress, people that have maybe accomplished something in business, for example. Mm-hmm. And we forget that in certain communities, you know, whether it's here in the US or overseas, the people there know how to live, especially with their own land and their own particular set of circumstances. Absolutely. Yet we have this notion that we can come in and cure all because we know what we've done here to survive or perhaps to succeed, quote unquote, according to our values. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And, you know, I'm really glad you brought it up because I do talk about that in great lens in the book. Uh, I use a lot of sort of, you know, anecdotes from my own life, you know, uh, to make a point around that. I think, listen, I mean, I think people obviously start with the right intention. Um, so, uh, but I guess it's a sort of that, what that old age old saying that, you know, um, what the road to hell is paved with right intention or whatever it is. So I do feel that a little bit in the sense that perhaps the right intention sometimes also becomes a bit of a savior culture where we feel that, oh, yes, you know, we are going to join U.S. Um, uh, Peace Corps and, you know, these people know nothing. I'll go out there and I'll save them. But the thing is, they don't need to be saved by us. So I think even that attitude is kind of, it is very condescending. And uh, and I think, you know, very seldom all these institutions that had been built after Second World War, while uh, globally there had to be a lot of restructuring, if you also remember globally, you know, before Second World War, the world was still very much um, colonial playground, you know, for entities from Europe and also U.S. had colonies, as we know. Um, and I think the thing is, after the Second World War, um, when the colonies were being given up and all these restructuring was happening, um, in some ways, some of the institutions that were built perhaps had the same still mentality um, in terms of, again, going and thinking, you know, these are our former colonies and they need our help. Uh, to think how they should grow. Um, so I feel institutions like the World Bank um, and you know a lot of these are multilateral institutions, they still have that mentality. So it's immaterial if we you know who's working there. As a matter of fact, you know they're very globally diverse, but the reality is they have all have the same attitude when they're going into these countries. So you know, as a matter of fact, I actually just watched this clip and I was just like, whoa, this is incredible. The Kenyan president um, they had a, there was a meeting, I think, I believe, for some climate summit and just telling, you know, basically the French president how we don't need to be told. We don't need to be told what solution is here. How about we have a system that there where we all have a voice and we're all working together? So it was very interesting. Um, this clip was sent to me by so many different people. I saw it myself and then they kept on sending it to me. Um, then I put it up on my LinkedIn. I think that really you know, sort of encapsulates that whole feeling that we need to, in its high time, we actually give the opportunity to people to be basically able to create their own um, systems, be able to actually create their own way of growth. And the financial system is one of them that, you know what, we make it accessible for them so that they are valued the way they should be valued. Um, And I think uh, for me, you know, this is something I feel very, very strongly about because I just feel that, you know, if we don't 
uh, wake up to this. You know, even as you know, as Americans, if you don't wake up to this, the reality is, um, you know, we will not be able to sort of still enjoy the place we have, you know, globally. Um, and that's why, you know, I do think organizations like USAID uh, and so on and so forth, they have to kind of step up and be able to, you know, think about how they are approaching quote-unquote development. You know, it's the a- academic institutions, you know, who teach quote-unquote development. Um, you know, what are the teaching and what does it actually mean? Um, so I do feel that it is a time of reckoning that we actually sort of say, um, you know, are we looking at economic development, economic growth through the right prism? Um, and I think, you know, and, and I think that is really more of the question and starting with that point and then saying, okay, through the new prism, do we actually see where we're all equals and we actually are, this is not what we give them, it's actually what they want and, um, and we're actually new equal footing. So, yeah, so I think, you know, that's what we try to do at IX, you know, with what we do. And I think that's very important. And I do feel that, you know, this kind of narrative of global north and global south is very, very important. Um, you know, again, the narrative not always coming from the global north, um, but really having equal representation from both. Uh, and even in the impact investing space, you know, where uh, our work falls into um, there is a greater dependence on the global north uh, and the global north sort of saying how things should be. So it's kind of nice for me to be able to come back uh, every year and give everyone a you know, bit of reality check. <laughs> and that, you know what, trust me, global south is doing well. <laughs> so, so they don't need saving. <laughs> so speaking of impact investing again, you know, over the last perhaps handful of years, there's been a I would say a contraction, a step away from globalism, maybe even an increase in nationalism. I think uh, Thomas Friedman's book, you know, The World is Flat, Mm -hmm. perhaps needs to be rewritten now. There's this (laughs) move to, I don't know if isolationism is the right word, I think that's kind of too far, but I'm seeing this in the West, I'm seeing in the US. How do your conversations around impact investing and international investing, how do some of those issues that are currently, like I mentioned, nationalism affect fundraising? You know, it is very interesting. Um, I would actually say, so it's kind of, um, you know, I'm a firm believer. You can't talk about economics in a in a vacuum. You can't talk about finance in a vacuum because finance and economics and politics are very, very, very intertwined, right? So I think the reality is, um, and I will actually bring in the third dimension, which is actually the civil society, where again, people's voice come in. So public private and civil society kind of all coming together. This is kind of the, we, we are always sort of figuring out that right balance, right? Um, and I think even with this whole notion of um, in the US, and again, I will say the US because the reality is impact investing is thriving globally. In the US, the questions that have come up and all this, and again, it has been politicized and that's exactly why I say that you can't kind of move away from politics when you're talking about economics. But what is actually happening, I think, um, if you kind of step back and the policymakers at least have that sense that U.S. needs to have that global presence um, politically um, because of economic reason as well, right? So all the talk about China and this, that, the other. So um, if you are really detracting, um, then the reality is that's going to impact everything, your, you know, your economy, you know, all of a sudden you won't get the Amazon product tomorrow, 
right? Uh, because Amazon can't get it from China. So I do feel that there's a, it's very, uh, very, very interlinked that what we're seeing can operating outside of the US is the fact that we do see all these different governments um, playing a very effective role now. And we have, you know, very strong relationship with um, the Australian government, with the Canadian government, um, with the U.S. government, they come in, we basically take um, loans from them. So uh, from the Development Finance Corporation to act as it, they give us loans to be able to relend it. Um, so we basically see that they are really keen on having a presence um, in all the countries we work in because they do feel that the growth should happen ground up. So they are actually, you know, very much, you know, in you know, on the same page with us on how we are approaching it. And they also realize that, um, you know, they are in a good position to have this ability to play a role in the growth of these, com- in these uh, countries where if the countries are allowed to grow the way they want to grow and they're, um, they're kind of part of that equation, you know, the countries will, will basically respect them more. So I do feel that things, you know, while on the surface, it may seem like, um, the country is perhaps, you know, looking more inwardly. I would say at least thankfully the policymakers are smart enough to know that um, that is not a feasible thing. And the fact that the government still continues to, needs to continue to do its work globally. Um, and it can happen now in this new way um, because, you know, this is the way countries will listen to you. So I think it's... um. You know, I do feel that perhaps it would be nice if there was more kind of discussion around that. But the reality is it is it, it is actually what's happening. And I do think even in the U.S., I think the the reality is, you know, and I do hope, you know, with the book and with our work kind of being more known and again, you know, kind of as, as a Bangladeshi American, you know, doing the work outside, now coming over here and being able to share it that we can actually bring what we have, what we are learning and our success, uh, you know, back to this country. I think the reality is uh, the work that we're doing in the underserved communities, the work we're doing in terms of connecting the market, um, it is very needed. And and also the reality is it is happening here as well. I think it's just, you know, it's actually happening in a more quiet way. Um, and we just need to be able to, you know, talk about those and celebrate that because, uh, if you are going to, again, look inwardly, you then have to actually then also be able to serve your own communities, which I think needs to happen much more, even within the country. So it sounds like a couple of things to me. First is that I feel like your book would be well served to be in the hands of educators, perhaps high school, even college, because I feel like a book like yours has an opportunity to create a spark or, you know, change the trajectory of a generation where mm-hmm. they can learn that. And going going back to your word, and I'm a firm believer in this too, is the idea of ecosystem and mm-hmm. the role that the United States plays in the global ecosystem. A specific point, and I think you were probably alluding to it earlier, is that after the Cold War, the U.S. withdrew their presence from Africa, African countries, and China has established quite a strong presence in that part of the world right now, which has given them enormous advantage, especially now in the electrify movement and the transition to EVs, exactly. raw materials, et cetera. Um, but I think one of the struggles is the the myopia sometimes of people 
and perhaps even fear-based, you know, and it's done intentionally. We, you mentioned you were part of the media before, I'm part of the media, but, you know, it, it's very easy to atomize us nowadays where we own, we all get our own echo chamber news and see what we want to see just to echo back to us. Mm-hmm. But I think having your book in the hands of an educator would perhaps open people's eyes as to just what role we can play, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of not one individual country, but for the entire ecosystem. Raj, I'm so glad you said that because we actually very purposefully every year um, get a whole bunch of interns from the U.S., from the U.S. universities. And it has been, I mean, I just saw the new group before leaving. And, you know, these kids literally, they get transformed after you know, two or three months um, being with us because they just don't see this. They literally just don't see this. And interestingly, we always take kids from, you know, sort of these intense business schools, you know, these are all undergrads and for them where they learn business in just one way. So like now we have a group of kids, you know, and are like going into investment banking or consulting. So we have these kids from Wharton, from Princeton or all this. And I'm not saying because they're you know, good name schools, but we also obviously have from anywhere these, all these schools where they are, Villanova, wherever. I mean, they're all good schools, but they are all teaching these kids to think of finance in a certain way. So what they do is when they come over and they spend the summer with us, they're like, oh my God, like we didn't even know this was possible. So I'm just very, very, very glad that uh, we are able to open their eyes to the tools that they're getting, you know, things that they're learning in school and being able to just sort of, you know, think of it from a different angle altogether. So, so, you know, some music to my ears, what you're saying, if people read the book and they're more sort of, uh, you know, committed to have U.S. playing a role, you know, in this new way, this is, you know, if you think about it, this is really capitalism at its best, right? Um, Working with small businesses making them grow, making them actually uh, thrive and making them be valuable for not just the financial return, but also the social return they're making, the environmental return that they're making. So, so yeah, I mean, I do think it's capitalism at its best and it'll be great if we can teach our kids here, you know, the value of that. Triple bottom line. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, do you have a online syllabus, a portal? Because you did mention some pretty Ivy League schools, pretty high-ranking schools. But if there are people here in the audience, people here locally that want to learn more about your program but perhaps can't participate as an intern, can't travel for whatever reason, is there something you either have or are developing Absolutely. So I think people can go to iixinstitute.com. So we actually have an institute. Um, We have had over, what, 9,000 people who have gone through it. So you can take few courses you can you can actually t- take a bunch of courses and get a certificate so which really sort of gives you this allows you to have the journey and there are various journeys there's even a one there where you can um, you know take these short classes on all the different the sustainable development goals so if it's SDG 5 about women SDG 1 about poverty you know so um, and really kind of looking at every one of them in terms of uh, business angle and saying what can businesses do with it so you know, I really encourage people to go and check it out, IX Institute, uh, and, you know, take the classes and uh, and be able to sort of start their journey in learning. Well, unbeknownst to her, I'm going to sign up my 15-year-old. 
<laughs> oh, that'd be great, Rajo. Thank you. Very kind. Thank you. Absolutely. She's she's off for summer. She's sitting around right now doing whatever she might be doing. So I'm going to sign her up for one of your courses. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Of course. Now, <laughs> back to you. Tell me, yes. you've been on quite a, quite a journey. Um, one thing I wanted to point out earlier, too, when I was looking at your profile, you spent some time with the Grameen Bank. I remember reading about the Grameen Bank 20 years ago. You mentioned women. You mentioned the um, the amount of loans that, you know, zero loss, essentially, yeah. because of the the power that, you know, women hold in the community. How did working at the Grameen influence where you are today? You know, tremendously. Um, so I actually went, um, and again, for those of your listeners who know Grameen Bank, and it got the Nobel Prize in 2006. Um, and when I was at Grameen, this is back in 1991, 92, um, there was, you know, it was a small, tiny little outfit. So it was not, there was, and I was just very fortunate that I could work directly with the founder, uh, Mahmoud Yunus, brilliant man, and then be able to actually spend a lot of time in the villages, really figuring out some of the some of the branches which were actually defaulting, what was happening, trying to kind of understand that. Um, and for me, I do feel that I literally I left Morgan Stanley um, in New York, my job here, and went to Grameen. And with this really this, and I didn't even know Grameen existed. I just wanted to go back home and be able to use my finance, you know, to help everyone. And it was really remarkable that I could actually take my knowledge and be able to take take it to the people who actually really need it. Um, and you can, of course, define need in many different ways. But in this case, really sort of the, the basic human needs could be um, solved through, you know, my financial knowledge and being able to give them access to capital. And I think it was tremendous. I do feel that I always say that this was all, this all happened, you know, God, 30 some years ago. And I feel I still am living my Morgan Stanley Grameen bank experience over and over again, you know, like bringing the two together. Um, and I remember, you know, for me at that time, the two were very separate. And I'll give you an example. It was very interesting. And these are some of the stories that didn't make it in the book. Um, I decided to go back. Um, of course, in Morgan Stanley, everyone thought I was insane that I was going back. And for those of you who are immigrants, you can appreciate it. You know, I had the right visa, everything, and I gave everything up. Um, they really thought I lost it. Because, you know, you, as you all know, you know, being an immigrant in this country, you have to have the right paperwork and, you know, it's not easy to get them. And I just gave all those up and I just went back. And um, for me, it really was something, it was a calling. I had to go back. You know, I had to be able to use what I have learned. And, uh, and I think what was very interesting, I think, for me was I still remember my first day at work at Grameen. I showed up, the only thing I had other than in my kind of in my brain, the tools that I learned, I actually had a coach purse with me, right? That I had bought when I was a banker, I would carry this, you know, my coach tote bag. And um, which cost, if you know coach, you know, it, you know, it was an expensive piece of item. I basically showed up at work and I remember, and it was, you have to understand, everything's very Spartan at Grameen, even in the head office, it's super Spartan. It's like a fan, you just get one table and a, and a hard wooden chair. Um, you know, it's just very, very Spartan. You would get one writing pad, one pen. And if you are finished, you have to go, and you won't get another one for another three months, you know, that type of. So uh, I remember my colleagues sort of saying, oh my God, um, wow, that's really nice purse. How much was it? Where did you get it? 
And it was that moment I was like, oh, my God, I'm trying to, I brought a part of my life from the other world, and I shouldn't have. Um, because that coach purse was literally 30 times or 40 times my salary at that point. Um, you know, it was meager salary, but that was the starting government salary. Um, and it's very interesting enough, if you fast forward, I always, I, I was thinking of that example, why it may seem very sort of a trivial example. In some ways it's not, because I think perhaps sort of subconsciously my journey has been to bring these two worlds together, right? To be able to sort of say, okay, uh, that I can walk in with a coach purse, you know, in, um, you know, in the world that I operate in, and also I can walk in in a sari, you know, in Wall Street. So, I think, you know, I tried to perhaps, in my own way, try to bridge the two worlds that I live in, um, and I, and it's nice to say now, sort of in this age, um, it is very intertwined, and I'm so happy. Um, Again, for those of us who are immigrants, you know, we always have this sense of we don't belong. Um, you know, at least I do. Uh, I know sometimes I wake up at, I'm like, where am I now? I don't remember. Of course, part of it's also I travel a lot. But um, but it's sort of nice for me to be able to say that trying to sort of make this bridge for my own personal sort of quest, I've been able to sort of do that. Uh, through a financial system and really bring the two worlds together. Um, so, yeah, no, my God, it was such an incredible experience. It was such an incredible experience. Um, both Morgan Stanley and Grameen, you know, with all the goods and bads. And uh, But end of the day, fantastic. I'm, and I wouldn't be sitting here today if I didn't have those two places in my in my life. And I love the fact that you wear a sari. In fact, right before we started this recording, I was showing your profile picture again to my daughter and I said, I love that Doreen is wearing a sari in all of her profile pictures. Yes. And I, yes, thank you for, for noticing that because of course I have to, you know, caveat, I don't wear sari all the time, but I do wear it for every public occasion. Um, and it just for me, you know, the big thing was I really made about that because however we cut it in the West, um, whenever we box that perhaps they don't speak the language, they're not with, um, or they should be. But for me, it really was the fact that I need to actually, yeah, so I always very sorry and very bummy. <laughs> well, this could be a whole different show. But as you mentioned regarding immigrants, there are parts of us that we tend to not show to the world. Right. And those parts of us are still with us. And sometimes they can end up suffocating us. Yes, I completely think that, you know, and sometimes it's survival. Right. It's definitely mm -hmm. survival. Exactly. So, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. So I think, you know, I don't I make my value judgment. You know, in my case, I managed to make that a part of my life and part of my So I encourage everyone to actually go out there, even if they're not, if they feel like it. So speaking of your life and your journey, what's the most valuable lesson or lessons you've learned about yourself on your 30 years? You know, I think the most valuable lesson I learned about myself is the fact that I'm not someone um, and I think, you know, it doesn't work for my benefit, um, but I don't, if I see the, and, uh, and for me, that has been to the point, I'm sure, you know, my family sometimes gets tired there, let, let others fight some fights. Right? So <laughs> you don't have to fight every fight. Um, but I think, you know, I am a fighter. Me, that's just who I am. And you know, I'm glad that I get back up something that, you know, was hard for me where I have all the, my God, no one, it was, it's hard to be a fighter. Um, and, and I'm glad that my fighting's glad about. Well, it seems to have served you well. Yes, it has. It
So let's fast forward, let's say 10 years from now, it's 2033. Mm -hmm. And your favorite publication, it could be international or, you know, here domestic, it could be Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fortune, Fast Company, you name it, Mm -hmm. were to write a headline or perhaps even a small paragraph about the impact investment exchange. What would you like it to write? Um, Well, I would like them to write it was the company and I would, you know, that would be matter of fact any kind of coverage. If I, when I die, you have to make sure I have an obituary. So I love those. So on a personal note, please, if I can have an obituary when I die, and of course I'll be dead, but it's just things. I always love the angle. So yes, so there are two things I would. I like The Economist, but I have to tell you the covers recently have rubbed me the wrong way. Well, you know, they're just, you know, they're, listen, they're fundamental. Yes. You know, and then they have their, um, of the day I do feel they do a good coverage. I I agree. So last question, and I'm going to give you a very specific question because you've shared in between the lines here a lot of advice, but advice specifically to women entrepreneurs, what advice would you give them? You know, the advice I would give, be prepared to lose a battle. Oh, okay? I love that. And I say that um, with a lot. And I'll, I'll tell you, um, I think one of the big things in life I learned um, Sometimes you have to sow your pride. Um, you, the reality is more impact. And I'll tell you, case again, I don't go it in the book. Um, so there is a moment where we are structuring the women's livelihood, take, give out the... But one of the things that is not covered is the fact that at the end, because it was called the women's livelihood, so I won that battle. But what I did do was I actually men and men, our bankers, go out there. So I lost that battle of livelihood and hurt, absolutely making this absolute um and in a way losing that battle of five points impacting so lose the battle of so my advice to you remember the battles and the battle was well it sounds like it's pererfectly in line with your idea for marathon too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by the way which I do run so I think yeah <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave off and you're a big fan of the marathon analogy too so before we leave you Tell me about the orange initiative okay well um this is really taking kind of the work of impact investing I would say to the next level and really bringing in um, you know the financial markets so just like the green bond which again as we know received a lot of lot of uh, heat um, we actually have created this whole new asset class called orange bond so orange is the color of sustainable development goal five for uh, basically gender equality so for women girls and gender minorities so we have created this whole new asset class and I'm very proud to say this is a new asset class from the global south because everything usually comes from the global north and this is actually backed by the US government the Australian government um, and we have several uh, law firms from we have Sir Sherman and Sterling from the US and said Bank from Australia so we all came together and created this new asset class um, and now where we are in basically not only creating a way for the underserved communities to be a financial a part of the financial markets which is that's one of the requirements of this bond but then also what's very important is there is verification so again no washing at all um, the reality is anything any impact is being verified by the last mile and then very very importantly as we always see you can't have orange without green so 
It is about gender equality and climate action coming together. So you as a listener um, can basically play a role in it. You know, if you are part of an organization, asking your organization to actually look at the bonds or the financing that they're doing it to give them orange tagging. So um, which is, again, a great start. Or you as an individual, you can actually sign the orange pledge. So if you actually go to the IAX website, iaxglobal.com, um, you can actually sign the, the orange bond pledge. And uh, so far we have over 75,000 people around the world who have signed it. So we really want this to be an asset class by the people for the people. So really, really happy to be sharing that with you. And I appreciate that. And I'll put a link to the Orange Pledge in the show notes again, Doreen. I really appreciate all that you're doing. And I wish you tremendous, tremendous good fortune. Continue your journey with the everything you'll get your hands in, and especially, obviously, the Impact Investment Exchange. Great uh, luck with the book. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Great. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Raj. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.